Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guest and I discuss the five things from their life that they would choose to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor and now author, Patterson Joseph, who's been an almost permanent presence on our television screens since he first appeared in Between the Lines in 1992. But if you can act as well as he can, it's not surprising. Following his success of the RSC, where he won the Ian Charlson Award for his performances in King Lear and Love's Labour's Lost, he appeared in television programmes such as Soldier Soldier, Cold Feet, Waking the Dead, Silent Witness, A Touch of Frost, Murphy's Law, Sex Traffic, Jerry that Michelin Web look, the number one ladies' detective agency, Death in Paradise, The Hollow Crown, Babylon, Avenue 5, and Inside Number 9, among others. He was also in 26 episodes of Timeless, six episodes of Noughts and Crosses, Law and Order UK, Jekyll, Survivors, Green Wing, My Dad's the Prime Minister, Peep Show as Alan Johnson, 10 episodes of William and Mary, he was in Casualty for two years, and recently played the submarine captain in the brilliant drama Vigil. And I haven't even mentioned the films, such as In the Name of the Father with Daniel Day-Lewis and Emma Thompson and The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, I have now, obviously, but I've said nothing about his radio and voice work and his theatre work at the Royal Exchange, The Old Vic and The National. He's also written a book called The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho about the little-known 18th-century black writer and composer, which is what we're talking about when you join our conversation. So I'll shut up now and let you listen to the wonderful Patterson Joseph. (music) 
I saw you interviewed on the One Show the other uh, night, and yeah. I thought, I thought, so well, that looks exactly the sort of book that I'd be really interested in reading. Oh, I hope so. I mean, it's entertaining. I know, and it's almost accidental that I found myself deep in the 18th century because I mm. found this character and that's where he happened to have come from. So I've immersed myself for the last 20 years in the 18th century. It's just how, <laughs> um, how jolly <laughs> he is. Impossibly yeah. jolly. I call it a militant joy. It's like all <laughs> hell was breaking loose around you. Why are you still able to make up funny words and laugh along with David Garrick and Stern and uh, be that guy? And you knew what you were doing. It wasn't as if he was oblivious. And it was almost like he was saying, I'm going to fucking live. I know I'm meant to be all repressed and depressed mm. and my music should be dirgy, but I'm going to write pop songs and reels and jigs. It's amazing. So, I mean, he came from a slave ship. Yeah, man. He was born on a slave ship. As far as we know, we have very little information on him, but we think we know that much. Slave ship, mother died soon afterwards. The father died a little later, according to his biographer, his father had uh, committed suicide, which was quite a trope in the anti-slavery tracts. So it may have yeah. been true. It may have been. Certainly he was, he was brought to England on his own. You wrote it as a play, didn't you? Yeah, I started off as a play. A one-man show, actually. A play is a bit of a grand... Uh, <laughs> it was a, it's a monologue. It's just me talking, my, yeah. my favourite kind of acting. Yeah. But then it dawned on me, I'd mm. never you know, really think about how did it look to him? How did London look? How did it smell? How did it feel to be with those sisters and to be mm. a pet and to be dressed up? Did he just go with it like you would as a kid? Or was he self-aware? And then I thought the only way to do that is to go in his head. And I started doing uh, started the novel and uh, that's where it is. It's, it takes place in his head mostly. And yeah. It's been a, quite a journey. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it must have been extraordinary. Although there were quite a lot of black people in Britain at that time, though, weren't there? Yeah, I mean, lots of people from everywhere. I mean, lots yeah. of Arabs, uh, lots of Arabs, because they were sailors. A lot of them were, were sailors, um, yeah, a lot of course, Chinese, yeah. uh, a lot of Jews. There was uh, Indians. There were obviously lots of African-Americans because they'd run away from their masters. And one of the biggest and most persecuted communities who helped them was the Irish community. Really? So it, up really? in Seven Dials, Covent Garden, there was a stink hole. It, was, it had an abattoir. It reeked. It was violent and dark and dangerous and so the authorities would never go in there but a lot of the irish and the working class white poor lived in there and mm. they must have looked after each other because there are lots of uh, reports that i've read over the years of runaway slaves thinking that they could be free in london and then running to seven dials because they heard that it was a safe place and then just being swallowed up by that community yeah. and disappearing forever so uh, that kind of loyalty black and white it's not very often publicised. Often people just think it's always been dichotomous, especially the working white and the, and the immigrant, but that wasn't always the case. And there was a solidarity between the slaves and the working poor because their enemy was, was above them. They, they knew who their enemy was. It was very clear to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to bring that spirit back rather than all this divisive shit. I want to say, look, we, we have the same enemy. <laughs> Greedy fuckers. <laughs> it's really obvious, don't you think? Yeah, it should be. At the moment, the thing that keeps annoying me is the playing with numbers. It's making one number large and another number small. Yeah. So suddenly 22 billion is talked of as a small number. So track and trace, 22 billion. Well, we needed to spend that. Six billion, in order to keep giving people £20 a week when they're absolutely desperate, is almost impossible. It's impossible. It's too much. Can't possibly find that sort of money. That's a penny on everybody's tax. A penny. Terrible. One pence. Nobody can afford that. 
None of their friends can afford that. Well, they wouldn't pay it anyway. No. (laughs) The other number that they keep quoting, which newsreaders quote as if it's an appalling figure, when they say a thousand people came into the country last week illegally. They never say, which in comparison to the number of people who actually went into France is quite small. We don't take anywhere near as much as France does or Germany, Germany, my God. A lot of these people have an association with this country, which is why they want to come here. Yes. For a start, because of our colonial past, they speak English. That's also it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a major thing, and it's it's a part mm-hmm. of your responsibility, I think. Yeah. I think, it, just as a human being, even if they didn't speak our language, but certainly on top of that, we've had to do with these people. We've had some influence in their lives, and some part of why they're here will be part of t- to do with what we did in those countries. Yeah, yeah. They have relatives who live here, Mm -hmm. so they want to come for that reason. Mm -hmm. They've also, many of them, have worked for British companies or worked for the British armed forces abroad and therefore think if they come to Britain, they'll be cared for. So the idea of this sort of weird, strange invasion of these people who for some reason want to come in here, which must be insidious. Yeah, listen, I'm an immigrant. I, I come from immigrant parents. I've seen how hard my relatives work. I haven't got any relatives that I know, certainly that first generation who came, they all worked incredibly hard. All their focus was on getting their children through school, making sure their children didn't get into trouble, for the most part. Obviously, there were were cases where this didn't happen, but you ask any black kid born of that first generation, we were usually beaten. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Because they wanted us to be disciplined. They knew how dangerous it was for black kids out there. They wanted us to be disciplined, to listen to authority. And um, that's who we were. And statistically, sons and daughters of immigrants do very well, Pretty Patel. They do very well because mm-hmm. they're driven to do well by their mm-hmm. parents who are driven to do well. That's the yeah. average story. Uh, and then, yes, you get the outliers who were always plucked out by the media to go, look at these people, they came in here, they've taken our benefits, and now they're going out. Well, that's, yeah, you can find those rare stories about any community, I should think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look at that kid, he went to Eton and Oxford, and he had all these advantages, and now he's stealing everything, everything, mm. in front of our eyes, and giving them to his mates, Boris Johnson. But there we are. Oh, God. <laughs> right, we've done that now, we've done that. Now you can start recording and we can start the chat. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that out of the way. So we are now going to move on to, I hope happier things. We are going to talk about five things from your life that you would like to put into a time capsule. Shall I go in? I'm going to go in order of the way in my life these things came up. Is that all right? Yeah, that's great. Chronologically. (laughs) That's a good word. (laughs) I should have used that in my book. (laughs) Nice long words. Mine are all two syllables long. Um, Television. I I lived uh, above, with my five siblings, above a shop in Wilsdon Green. And uh, the shop was called this and that, which I always say was like an assortment of things. And that's what we were, like it was a sorted <laughs> bag of personalities and loud, very loud, living in this three-bedroom flat. So we didn't go out very much because we lived on the high road. And we didn't have lots of mates to run around with because there weren't any kids. So we ended up sort of entertaining each other, entertaining ourselves. But television became my obsession, television and radio. Radio because I just loved to hear <laughs> I just love to hear English being spoken. My parents, <laughs> my parents spoke Quail, and uh, which is from Saint Lucian uh, Creole, and they stopped teaching me. They stopped speaking it when I was three. 
So uh, I didn't know this till I was 30, but I remember making mistakes. It's in, it's in a book I've written um, called Julius Caesar and Me. There's a bit of a uh, biography at the beginning. And I talk about language and how obsessed mm. I became about it because it was basically taken away from me. And a three-year-old, their language is good. You know, it's quite formed. And to have, suddenly go, you're not allowed to speak that, made me obsessed with, with, with radio and hearing English. Uh, this is preschool. But so at the age of three, you were told you had to, no, actually, you really need to learn this other language. Yeah, yeah. And we're not, well, we would have had it because we would have been listening to the television and the radio. We would have been. And my, mm-hmm. my siblings, who were a little bit older than me, a brother five years and three sisters in between me and him, they were already going to school, some of them, or just about to, sister older than me was about to go to school. And the other three were going to school. So I would have been hearing English. But the house language, where I stayed most of the time, was all quail. So I, um, I got sort of obsessed. I just got obsessed with language. And I got really good at imitating voices, particularly of newscasters. And I blame that for the way my voice sounds. Like, even when I speak normally, people think I'm pronouncing something. Like, I go, could I have three sausages, please? I was, I was in a butcher's today with my mum. Could we get a gannon? Do you have a gannon? And they, and they look at me like, and that's the end of the news. Can I have it? Because my voice, my voice just, just became very sort of formal. And I used to imitate the newscasters. I remember watching The Weekend World. I was a bit of an eight or nine, which is a Sunday uh, magazine program, like a political magazine program, dry as dust. And I remember sitting there on an old bobbin, a quite a large bobbin that mum got from McVitie's, the factory she worked in, in Acton. And this is mm. wonderful little blue thing that I was rolling around. And I realized I could use it as a swivel chair, like uh, that guy, like that guy on the telly. Well, I could do that. <laughs> and I'd spin around. And I'd spin around and I'd go, yes, well, the fiscal policy in Scotland really does need to be looked after. <laughs> yes, but I mean, I think the prime minister has really doubled down on it. And I'd do all that. and do. But the thing I was obsessed with was telly. And I had programs that I was so loyal to. These were my family. And I wanted to, to be them almost. And my first family were John Steed and Emma Peel. I loved them in ways that I can't really express. <laughs> I can't tell people how much they meant to me. I was probably about seven or eight when I first came across them, possibly. And he was so nice. I mean, he was so calm. He was strong and he could fight if he needed to, but he, he wasn't a man of violence. And he had this beautiful woman with him who was so dynamic and strong and powerful, like the women in my life, really strong. But gosh, she was gorgeous. And they laughed together and they smiled together. And, and of course, <laughs> as an eight-year-old, there wasn't any sexual chemistry as such, but I just loved their relationship. I loved the fact that they were loyal and they clearly loved each other. Sort of almost like a fatherly thing, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. And they balanced it perfectly. Mm. They didn't ever do that thing that they slightly did with Doctor Who, where they made it, oh, there's a romantic thing going on. They Mm. never fell into that trap. And when she left, I can't believe I didn't cry. I think I might have cried. When I saw the episode where she drove off, she was getting married, drove off in that, I think, little white car, I remember it. I mean, I've got a, (laughs) this is ridiculous. I feel it now. I can feel that kind of, what? And then this Tara King. Tara King. Uh, oh, she's quite good. Oh, she's tough as well. Oh, she's very nice. All right. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. But everything I ever saw with Diana Rigg afterwards, and I, by God, I got to work with her not that many years ago on a thing called uh, You, Me, and the Apocalypse. And of course, I, I had to mm-hmm. eventually confess my undying loyalty to that character that she played. You do have to say to people, do you know what? I really loved you when I was younger. Because they are your, I don't know, they're your forerunners, certainly. I didn't know I was going to be an actor, but also they're just, 
My investment in these things was absolute. It was special. We weren't allowed to watch it all the time, but mum would let me sit up. I think that's because it was after the news. After she came back from the factory, we'd have three biscuits and a cup of tea because we were just so too lively. We'd just get up again. Dad had put us to bed at seven when he went to the factory, but we just got up and messed around. (laughs) Uh, We'd watch the 10 o'clock news with her. That's where we first saw Trevor McDonald, the only <laughs> black man that I remember on television, him and Rudolph Walker. Love my neighbor. And then uh, most of the kids would go to bed and then I would just stay with mum at 10.30 and watch the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously part of it, wasn't it? I'm with my mum. It's a big family. And there I am. All, all, I've just got her to myself. Mm-hmm. And an endless supply of biscuits. No. No, my God, no. Mike, three biscuits. Oh, okay. Three biscuits. If she worked at the McVitie's factory, she knew. We were just greedy kids, so we would just eat them all. <laughs> we were only allowed three. It was a ration. And we all had different ways of eating them. And and I could talk to you about how my brother used to examine them and turn them over and eat them bit by bit, which I thought was weird. And then I would just dip and eat, dip and eat, and just eat. And they'd just look at everybody else eating theirs. And then one of my sisters would hide hers away, let us finish ours. And then she'd suddenly go, and we'd go, Glenda, where'd you get those from? She's like, the same as yours. I just kept them. I don't know what it was about her, but she was all really good at sort of just delaying gratification. <laughs> so it was like a mirror of each of our personalities. <laughs> so that was that's my big that's my big first memory, the the Avengers. And I miss that. I miss mm. loyalty to a show. I miss the trust that I had that every week these people would turn up and they would do something remarkable. They would it would be scary. Some of the things were scary. I still remember some of them now. The mm. guy with the rubber finger. <laughs> but they were going to keep me safe. I guess like those guys who like and girls who like Doctor Who. It was dangerous, but I was safe with these guys. Mm. And, uh, and again, as I said, I, I wanted to be him. I still, if I have a tall umbrella, there's no doubt about it, I still walk like John Steed. You've got a bowler hat. <laughs> no, I, I wear a Gatsby, and, uh, and I think that's probably my equivalent. I don't think I could pull off a, a bowler hat. No, not many people can. No. Diana Rigg, she was fantastically beautiful, wasn't she? Yeah, but her intelligence as well, that's the thing that shone through. And I'm not mm. saying that other women on TV weren't intelligent, I just mean it was obvious that he relied on her because she had to be physically mm-hmm. the big fighter. But she was also really quite clever at um, working things out. Uh, and I, I think that's why yeah. uh, I love it. Well, I mean, I, I'm very attracted to intelligent women. Diana Rigg and, uh, just taught me that a woman can be, you know, absolutely sexy and beautiful and make you feel, you know, virile and strong, but still maintain her own person and be her own mm. person. Okay, so that's fantastic. We will put television and we will put the Avengers Lovely. into the time capsule as your first item. So yes. let's move on to item number two. Item number two, it's uh, a song by um, an artist called Prince Allah, A-double-L-A, mm-hmm. and it's called Bucket Bottom. Uh, and no, it's not rude. It's um, <laughs> it's literally about the bottom of a bucket. It's a reggae song, but it's a sort of set, set of Jamaican aphorisms and wise uh, sayings every day bucket go a well one day the bottom must drop out and there's something about the reggae that i listened to that i want to sort of encapsulate or sort of hold and that is the Mm. education that i got through it the moral education things you did uh the education about how Black people were treated in the past, Mm -hmm. Uh, education about how women uh, dealt with life, about the reliance on women in in Caribbean culture, Uh, obviously sex, uh, (laughs) definitely violence, 
And a lot of my education was through reggae. Songs that I, I heard, artists that I listened to, Iroy, Dennis Brown, uh, a little later, Beres Hammond. These writers were, and, and singers were not just writing lovely tunes, and they were. They were also singing about their faith. Mm-hmm. They were singing about their political uh, aspirations. And you know, Bob Marley came into my life much later, funnily enough. I was right. a, a sort of more of an adult. And I, I had heard him in my teenage years, you know, the odd song, but I didn't really uh, get into him until after his death, I think. But that, if you can think about that kind of music, I know it's a, it's a very sort of standard thing to go to Bob Marley, but if you think about him, he was a teacher. That's what he did. His songs are teaching you. No Woman, No Cry. It talks about the emotions of, of women. It, you know, it's a man singing, but he, he, wants, he wants you to, to, to tune in to women and women's emotions. There's songs of, of, you know, love and, you know, stir it up. and Stir it up is, is, is all about that, you know, physical <laughs> love. But there's, there's also redemption song. You know, there's songs that teach mm. you, literally teach you about uh, African-Caribbean history. And, and that it was a large part of my education as a black person who was getting none of that at school. I got none, no, no education. I didn't know who Marcus Garvey was. I didn't know what the Black Star Line was. I didn't know about this Back to Africa movement. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything until I was, I'd left, long left school and started uh, doing research for you know, plays and things. And I started to dig mm. into Malcolm X and really found out what Martin Luther King was about. So my education before that was, was you know, sit, standing in a club, you know, in a darkened club somewhere, uh, <laughs> you know, listening to this music. But why Bucket Bottom in particular? Just the, if you listen to this tune, there's a bass line, and bass is very important with reggae. Some people, mm. when they listen to reggae, they go, oh, I just hear it, and chick it, and chick it, and chick it, chick it. And they're like, it's boring, it's boring, it's boring. Like, yeah, there is a repetitive rhythm but it's just the rhythm of it if you listen to everything else the harmonies the harmonics the the way the bass uh works with the drum mm. it's tr- it's something uh deep and the vibration of it is about getting to a place where you're in a kind of meditative state and bucket bottom even though it's a it's kind of a, it's, a, it's a dance tune it has a kind of rhythm and i when i when i think of it and i remember it i remember p- particular very dark club we used to call them shabins stolen from the irish i suppose who had a lot of influence in the caribbean you'd go to these shabins and they were usually like in in either in somebody's house in, the, in their back room and you pay 50p to get in 50p for a special mm-hmm. brew or they would be in the basement of a like a mini cab office. There was one in Kenzo Rise over the second rise and it was down in the basement. Boy, <laughs> you could see nothing going down these stairs. And also it was the days in which black people who loved reggae were also quite aspirational in the way they dressed. So the women were mm-hmm. all in twin sets and pearls, basically, except the yeah. pearls were Krugerrands if they could afford them. Oh yeah, wow. set South African. Imagine that in yeah. 1975. South African Krugerrands, you had to have, or a sovereign on a ring. You wear your wealth. I know that very well, coming from a, from a working-class family. You wear your wealth. There you go. Show your wealth. And, and the aspiration was for high-class, high-end. So the boys, <laughs> if they could do it, I could, I could never get there, wore silk suits. They wore uh, usually a silk shirt if they could, 
the brand uh, at the time that everybody wanted was Kabichi. Farah slacks. A Cecil G suit. Doesn't exist anymore, I suppose, but Cecil G suit. And to top it all, crocodile or lizard skin shoes. It's very interesting, that, isn't it? That working class thing of, I think because most of the time they're working in in dirty, hard, sweaty conditions, and they wear overalls and working men's clothes. Mm. So when they go out in the evening, at the weekend, people are just, it looks like a wedding. To the nines. To the nines. Dress to the nines. And why? Because, hey, just because I don't have a lot of money, it doesn't mean I can't put it on. Doesn't mean no. I can't look the part. Don't don't be looking at me. And it's got to be like you know, got to be clean. It's got to be crisp. It's got to look. It's mm-hmm. got to look good. This is me showing my best self. But that <laughs> image. This is the image that I want to hold because it's tr- mm. it's tribal. So at the bottom of this. By the way, if you stepped on somebody's lizard skin shoes, you could get cut easily. I've seen it happen. Don't step on anybody's Crocs or lizard skin shoes. You have to be very careful. It's a sort of caution when you get down there. You find your spot. And you're in a corner, and it's dark, Mike. It's dark. There's no lights, there's no spinning mirror ball. It's dark, and it's close. And in the corner, there's a tiny, tiny little light over one turntable. Not two turntables, one turntable. And the DJ has a mic, and he toasts. He's going, he got a sound call. Uh, Bucket bottom, Prince Allah. Tune. (laughs) And then he'd play the tune. By going, you know, putting it, putting a needle on the thing, really looking, just do it perfectly. It was just seamless. It was seamless. But what you saw from the back of the room was silhouetted heads and shoulders. And so when, you just saw these shoulders all just bobbing at the same sort of time and in the same, it was, I mean, it was just exhilarating. And especially as one of those tunes where if they started to play it, you could hear the beginning. You'd hear all the girls go, so there was a sort of, I mean, uh, even now that was thrilling. I found it thrilling. There's there's an album cover. There's an album cover by Marvin Gaye. Mm. I think it might be What's Going On. Yes. That makes me think of that. One of those clubs, people hanging off of walkways at the top, people coming down the stairs. The floor is absolutely packed. And it's full of people in in the most amazing positions. Everybody's dancing. They're all dancing. They're all connected to this music. And and it is the music. I mean, it is... Obviously, there are those occasions. Is what we used... Well, I never... I managed to do it twice, and it was... failure pretty much every time the way a boy would grab a girl it was always that way around is they'd obviously spot them across the room and they would just go up to them as the song began and sometimes in the middle of the song just go up to the girl put their hand out and take the girl and then they would just start dancing i thought oh man that's oh that's amazing but i started going to class when i was 13 so i was like i was short i was very short and i wore very cheap suits i only had a paper out come on and uh, uh, i was clearly very young i mean i'm i quite i look a bit younger than my my 57 years now and imagine when mm. i was 13 i looked about 10 <laughs> i would go with my bro i'd go with frank my brother and uh, i remember trying to go to this one place we got in but the guy looked at me the rustler looked at me went you man <laughs> <laughs> and i was i put on a screw face you know like a heavy face like mm. but he's like you man but this was the wonderful thing is to walk into these places and see these guys doing that like i can i'm gonna try that 
I probably would have waited a couple of years before I did. I was about 15 and I tried it. Oh, God, the girl, mm. said, the girl said no straight away. Why? Because I went, would you like to dance? <laughs> you were mad. He was right. You were mad. But that's a time where the police had complete control in those situations. They were going in and they were threatening people mm. in over and over and over again, every day intimidating them. Mm. And people stood out against them. We had activism in this country quite early on, I think, even, I mean, you, if you look back, there was a lot of uh, sort of pan-African conferences in the early part of the 20th century here, which uh, I haven't seen much about in terms of, you know, art, uh, you know, depictions of it. No. But that would have been very interesting, those turn-of-the-century guys, those first one of the first generation to be educated out of slavery. Mm. And by the time they were in their sort of 40s, towards the end of the 19th century and into the into the 20th century, they began to, to be active. C.L.R. James and um, even W.B. Du Bois, who was in America. These guys, you know, Booker T. Washington, they were all sort of coming through educated and absolutely acknowledging the international side of their, yeah. their being. Mm. So pan-Africanism really started around that. That time. The Black Panther movement yeah. and that coming over, that was quite, that was very strong in this country. Yes, it did. Yeah, we had our own, we had our own version of that. But mm. uh, as always with these things, they, it was undermined and infiltrated by Secret Service and, uh, and, yeah. and, a, and a sort of mistrust of the black uh, political voice. And if I look now, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know where these things are anymore. I don't know where that. That focus is except Black Lives Matter, but I suppose that's a that's a political uh, sort of social cry. Yeah. Whereas political parties and political sort of focus is is seems to me to be missing. There's not a place I could go to. I could say, oh, this has happened to these people who are black. I'm going to go to the organisation that deals with this, and, and they'll, yeah, they'll help us. They'll get lawyers. Or yeah. Help, you know, where would you go? That's a shame that we politically. I, I know that we're very active. It's not that that, we're, that black people aren't active. It's just. I wish we were active more in a, in a sort of mainstream way so that our voices yeah. could be heard, you know, against all those, the clamour of voices that we hear. Well, we can always cheer ourselves up by listening to Bucket Bottom. Bucket Bottom. Have a listen Bucket. to that. Lovely. A lot of wisdom in there. OK, well, I'm going to put that in there. Prince Ella, that goes into the time capsule. Nice. Lovely. OK, sorry to interrupt this podcast, but I just wanted to let you know that we're taking a break here for some adverts or sponsorship news. But we'll be back with the rest of my chat with Patterson very soon. See you in a minute. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to part two of my time capsule with the actor Patterson Joseph. Right, let's see what else he'd like to preserve in his time capsule. Yeah, and then a couple of, they're sort of almost like sense memories. Um, The sound of snow falling in the mountains was a brand new sound to my ears and I was like 32 when I first heard it and I'd been taken up there by my ex-wife who was uh, from France but they used to ski in the southern Alps so I'm 32 and I'm standing on the top of this hill with planks on my feet and I'm a a Londoner and I'm going what the what am I thinking of (laughs) I'm not you know Sasha Distel I'm not some French guy who's like you know, I, oh, I'm a, I could do a bit of art and everything. And then I now I can ski. It's like, I have never, <laughs> and why am I even doing this? is madness. How can I stop myself? And, and having to launch myself and go, oh, okay, I'm going to die or I'm going to get injured. <laughs> and making it to the bottom and the feeling of exhilaration. I mean, all the way in Chassonage, just to say a snowplow. Basically, you're just going, breaking all the way down. But I got to the bottom and I hadn't died. And some of it even felt nice. And I remember standing there, and it was a quiet part of the piece because it was like so junior slope, yeah? so hardly anybody was going down it. <laughs> and it snowed, and it's, and it's quiet. I could hear a few people on the other side of the mountains or, you know, skiing and stuff. And I've never heard such a profound silence, Michael. But the silence was made more silent by the fact that I could hear individual snowflakes falling and, and it's like if i wanted to meditate all i need to do is just think of that moment because it was a shock it's like mm. when i was in new york in 95 i was in i was there for about two months and my it was our first wedding anniversary and i took her up to uh, poughkeepsie because we were doing hamlet on broadway and it was loud and it was it was ray fines and it was like everybody came to see us and it was like ah. i saw that at the hackney empire Oh, yeah. I met Diana Rigg there for the first time. That came to the opening night. Wow. Yeah. You and Tom Cruise. Quite. I went to the party afterwards. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very Mm. special. That show was very special. Special. Very special. Anyway, you're on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loud, brash, everything's happening. And so I take her up to this place called the Mohonk Mountain House up in Poughkeepsie. First thing is we're on the train going along the Hudson and we're bombing out of New York on a Friday night. It must have been a Friday night. We had a weekend off, a rare weekend off. And uh, we get there and we come out of the station and there's a taxi that's going to come and get us, a sort of shuttle bus, and we've got 20 minutes to wait. We, we stand in the corner and we both look at each other and start smiling because it's <laughs> deafeningly quiet. And I mean, <laughs> like it was oppressive, like the silence was doing things to your head. We both were laughing like, oh my God, we were so immersed in noise like 24 hours we hadn't realized how profoundly used to it that we'd gotten to and (laughs) 
and we <laughs> we spent the next two or three days like on the balcony just kind of in the sort of staring at the lake going this is amazing <laughs> um, but that snow falling on mountains hearing the snow falling in the mountains is something i'd like to capture and keep forever i do have it i have it always you know i'd absolutely forgotten that sound until you mentioned it and now i, I can immediately picture it and hear it yes and the muffling effect yes. of snow yes but then when it actually snows heavily yes it's astonishing you go from that muffled silence yeah. You can just hear this incredibly faint sound. Yes, like little pops, little... Mm. And it's like you're in a room. It's like you're, the world is a room. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I wasn't saying yeah. that poetically, but it's like the world becomes a room, like you're inside somewhere rather than it you know, being vast. It's like it just comes right in. It's a beautiful thing to hold. Well, right, we will put the silent sound of snow. Falling in mountains. That's yeah. lovely. Right, let's move on to number four. Okay, number four is... Um, uh, this is a bit of a, a slightly melancholy one, I, I think. So I lived in Twickenham, and my boy had, I think he'd just been born, in fact, and I was doing Elmina's Kitchen, which is a Kwame Kweama play mm. at the National Theatre. Who now runs the, the, the Young Vic. That's right, the amazing yeah. Kwame Kweama. So we're doing this play, and it's, um, it's a great play, actually. And it's the first time I'm standing, you know, bowing to an audience where I can see young black kids, like 15, 16-year-olds, mm. clapping. And it makes me emotional now. Oh, I must be an emotional bloke, but it makes me quite emotional now. And they're applauding, but they're looking at us mm. and they're looking around. And it's like they can't believe that their life has been depicted well on the stage of this weird place with these weird people. But there's a sort of joy and a surprise. And that mixture of, oh, wow. <laughs> Getting really emotional. We matter. I've never seen it. I'd never seen it before because I'd never done a play like that before. Mm. And they'd never seen a play like that before. It was genuinely the most moving experience. Um, I'm not saying it's the greatest, you know, performance I ever gave, certainly in my own opinion. But in terms of what it meant, uh, Mike, to the people watching it, I've never felt so utterly um, privileged, humbled, and grateful to be giving it to these kids, to, to allow them to see themselves. And, and the people of my generation saw themselves and saw their problems, saw their dilemma at the National Theatre. And I really do thank, I mean, obviously Kwame and the whole bunch of everybody who was, who was part of it, but also uh, Sir Nick Heitner. Mm. for taking that chance yeah. to sort of play like that and not knowing if it would work or not, but it worked. If theatre just stays a thing that becomes the plaything of rich white people, mm -hmm. it's dead. Shakespeare would have done it in the afternoon, in the rain, mm -hmm. in front of great crowds of people who shouting at him and saying, you know, get on with it. It was working-class people, mostly. Though. Yeah. Some nights of the Hackney Empire, because we let everybody in, it was like that mm. too. And we loved those nights where we yeah. could hear the audience not knowing how to behave in a theatre, shouting and screaming at Gertrude. You know, <laughs> that's what you need. That's what you needed. Live, very live theatre. So, yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. It's a, it was a beautiful moment. So I had that play that I was doing that was feeding my soul, you know, at the National Theatre. And I lived in Twickenham, and we lived near um, Harlequin's Rugby Ground. There's a bunch of bungalows around there. And my boy, in fact, he was born on the day we started rehearsing. 
and they let me off that one day, <laughs> yeah, one day paternal leave. Uh, and then I got back into it. So by the time I was doing the play, Clem was home and um, we were having that life. And I remember mm-hmm. <laughs> getting on my bike in Twickenham and cycling that road to the station at Richmond to get the train to Waterloo and saying this to myself, this is a golden age. You will never have this again. And it wasn't melancholy. It was just a total knowledge that I would never mm. be this content again in every single way. I have a child who I've longed for, happily married. I'm living in a perfectly nice place. We've got friends around and I've got a job, an amazing job. That's not only <laughs> at the, my favourite theatre, yeah. the National, but it's about people that I know and people that have never had their stories told. And um, this is a golden age. This is a perfect storm. And I was absolutely right. I was absolutely, yeah. I've had happy times. Don't worry about that. But this like, was like 100. You know, I've had some 90s. I've had some 85s. But that was like, I knew. I was never going to get any better than this. And that's the combination of all those things as well, isn't it? Because you would have been absolutely knackered as well. Yeah, of course. I wouldn't have known. You're probably delirious. Yes. I- <laughs> but but in, the, in my delirium, I, I must have been very insightful because absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think it was a wish fulfilling thing. I think it's the facts. I think yeah. most parents must know at some point where they're looking at this firstborn that that can't happen again. You can't have the firstborn again. So this thing right here, this triangle thing that's happening right here is completely unique. And this whole world ahead of you. I remember that really clearly. I think if you've not been through that, Mm. it's difficult to explain. I remember running into the Paris studios in London, Lower Regent Street, to record a radio thing, and I was late. And I'd sort of run all the way from home. And I went in for the read-through of the two scripts that we're going to do that night. And I was late and I went into the, the room and I said to everybody, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm late. Sorry, I'm late. Hi. All right. Everybody. All right. God, brilliant. I'll tell you, last night I was awake all night. Baby wouldn't sleep. And, and I did, I changed the nappy. I did the nappy and, and I put my fingers in and I lifted her legs up and she shat all over me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they, uh, silently stared at me as if I'd gone completely <laughs> mad, which I think I probably had. <laughs> I love that. And I love how happy mm. you were that she'd shared. <laughs> it. it was just the most beautiful thing. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. That is so beautiful. And and he's, and I'm sure she is, still my darling. You know, he's my darling. Mm. I haven't had any other kids. But I think even if I had, bless them. I'd be honest and say, yeah, but he's the first. <laughs> because there's something about there's something about that moment. Because it's it was so long, we so longed for it that he he just like you said, he just it was a switch, and I knew my life would never be the same. Very few things in life do that to you, right? Just go from today, it's all because ch-. you say that you know you give up smoking or you give up drinking or you give up this. Oh, my life will be the same. And sometimes you go back and forth, mate. But that is like it's here. This is the difference forever yeah of course i do have two children now the second one is actually the producer of this uh, podcast oh, oh so, terrific my son and as you say the first one i adore second one i keep him around because he's useful ah, lies lies <laughs> <laughs> wonderful you're on that bike you're riding down that yeah. road towards the station yeah and there it is big it's grin on my capsule. face yeah beautiful now why do we have to end with this we should start with this you should have started with it it's it's a, it's a brief memory and it's I'm a fast runner. I'm a small kid. I'm about six, seven at this point, but I'm, I'm small. 
but I'm fast. I'm, the, I'm pretty much the fastest kid in the school. We're playing football. And I, I'm not brilliant at football, but if you kick the ball to me, I can run with it and run very fast. I'm not sure I know what to do with it. Once I get anywhere near the goal, but I could cross it. I could probably cross it, so I'd be all right with that. So at one point, I'm playing, and it's a, I could tell it's quite an important match, but we're playing each other. One form is playing another, so it, we're all, we all know each other. And I, um, you know, as, as always, somebody, somebody boots the ball, and it goes over the heads of all the defenders, and I guess I'm not offside, but he knew, anyway, none of them could catch me. So I, catch this, <laughs> I get this ball, and I'm sprinting with this ball, and I look ahead, and there's... Are we allowed to swear on this thing? Yeah, yeah. Fucking Joe Lydon. <laughs> Biggest bully in the school, and just a mean, mean boy. Mm. Joe's a bad one. So I've mm. got the ball, and it's him in the goal. And if he'd stayed in the goal, I might have scored. But he knew enough to rush out. Mm. And he wa- I could see he wasn't rushing out for the ball, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't care where the ball was. I knew he didn't care. I could see that he was looking at me. And there were only, I was the only black kid in the school. And I could see him eyeballing me. And I was like, he's just going to come and put his studs in my face. Mm-hmm. So I coward that I am just outside the 18 yard box I just boot the ball and it's a muddy field in Wilsdon Green so it just goes plop roll 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 right into Joe Lydon's arms <laughs> and, I, and I, I don't know that anybody much was watching I mean there were a few parents and things like that, but I bet they were <sighs> anyway that's what ha- my heart went <sighs> I mean I've scored goals and I scored some nice goals after that but that is an abiding memory of utter Cowardice. <laughs> <laughs> Cowardice and failure. And if ever I feel like I, as the Caribbean says, I can smell myself, you know, <laughs> I'll just remember Joe Lydon and me going, huh? no, and just kicking the ball and it trundling softly into his arms. Oh, bloody, bloody Joe Lydon. Bloody Joe Lydon, eh? Because oh, I'm picturing if you'd gone on, I don't know if you remember the German goalkeeper in the, European Cup semi-final playing France. Yes. A great French team. Yeah, yeah. The goalkeeper came out and basically did a, a cantonal yes. on him. Yes. He, he just jumped into his chest. Yes. And was not punished in any way whatsoever. And they went on to win that trophy. It's talked about in France like the hand of God mm-hmm. is talked about here. I bet it is. Yeah. I bet it is. Yes, it's yeah. outrageous. Somebody was mentioning, uh, in fact, I was uh, chatting with Alex Scott uh, on The One Show. A wonderful, yeah. wonderful um, ex-footballer. And I asked her if she was in between, sort of, if she still played, you know, just to, to keep her hand in. And she said, yeah, I was, I, in fact, the last time when I, I was playing, I, was, I played with Maradona. And she talked about, oh, about passing it to him and it just not being right in front of him. He's like, two feet, two feet. And I said, yeah. Oh, my God. And then just before they started again, I went, yeah. I still hate his guts, though, for that hand of God. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we went into it. But I can't help it, even though, yes, rest in peace and all of that. I just remember how, you know how you just get fiery rage about righteousness? Like, that's wrong! That shouldn't be allowed. I was just so outraged <laughs> by that. Um, and I know he scored a brilliant goal afterwards. They would have won. They probably would have won. No, they wouldn't. No, I don't think they would, really. Mike, we no, agree, don't we? My grandson, little Freddie, is just coming up to being seven. And he plays in a football team at the moment. And when I play with him and he kicks the ball to me in the park, 
he can really kick it, you know, kick it, kick it hard. He's a big lad, you know, he's a tall lad. So I said to him, when you were playing the game, if you kicked it that hard sort of towards the goal, you might score. And he said, yeah, but if it hits someone, it would really hurt. Oh, bless his heart. I know. How lovely. That reminds <laughs> me of Clem when Clem was doing judo. Oh, yeah. lovely Clem. He was so tall. I mean, he's so tall. When he started judo at five and a half, I think, he was head and shoulders above most of the other kids. <laughs> and then they do competitions, and he knew all the holds, and he could do all the holds. And then his judoka, who was an amazing guy, amazingly patient guy, after two years of this, and I, I hadn't seen any competitions, he, he talked about the competition. He said, I don't think Clem should do judo anymore. And we said, well, why not? Because he enjoys the discipline. He said, yes, and he's very good at all of the moves and he knows everything. But he said, when it comes to competition, he will not hurt anybody and he <laughs> doesn't want to throw anybody. <laughs> so he just yeah. will have, he said, he'll have a little kid who's half his size and he'll just let them throw him because he doesn't want to yeah. hurt anybody. And I thought, okay, I know I don't have Bruce Lee, but I have a gentle, gentle soul. That's a nicer thing to have. I think, I think. so. Fantastic. Well, it's been absolutely lovely. I really, really enjoyed talking to you, Patterson. Me too, me you know, too. I'm honoured as well. You are one of this country's finest actors, I would say that, without any doubt. What a thing to hear from you. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Patterson Joseph. Thanks for listening. Please do subscribe to this podcast, and when you do it, it would be great if you would rate the show. Highly, I hope, and maybe write a small review full of words like crikey and stone me and law lover duck for any Victorians that may be interested in podcasts. You can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, where you'll get information about what we're up to and who's coming up as a guest, plus the occasional rant from me on random subjects that get my goat obviously. The theme tune that keeps you entertained during this bit of the podcast and desperately tries to drown out my inane ramblings was written by Past the Peas Music, and it's available to listen to without me spoiling it on Spotify. Spotify. Yeah. Whoever thought that would work as a name? Well, I suppose they could have gone for Zitius or Pustule. Anyway, I have to be grateful for small mercies. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Sound familiar? <laughs> you see, it's not what you know, but who you know. <laughs> it was nice of him to give me this job. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.